Okay, hello everybody. Today is Friday. Another Anything Goes Friday. Welcome to the show. Just a couple of quick announcements before we begin. You might notice that this is part two in a discussion on Stephen Avery and making a murderer. However, if you haven't heard part one yet, that's fine. You can keep listening. I always want my multi-part series on this channel to be available as standalone episodes, or you can listen to them as part of an ongoing series. However, if you are using the playlist, you might notice that Part 2 in the playlist is an episode called Was Stephen Avery Framed? It was a bonus episode that I did over the last week, over the last weekend, and that is also included there, but you're in the right place if this is the third episode that you're listening to. But I would like to pick up with some of the info that I was talking about last week in regards to the story of Stephen Avery, um, what happened to his nephew, Brendan Dassey, and the murder of Teresa Hallback. However, before we begin, I would like to remind you guys that you can download the audio version of this show at Launchpad 1. There's a link to that in the description box. It is the audio version as a pure podcast. If you would like to download the video version with images, you can use YouTube Premium, but that one you have to pay for. Launchpad 1 is free. And if you would ever like to go over to buymeacoffee.com, you can see that there is a way to make a contribution to support this show. There's also a link to that in the description box. Buymeacoffee.com has ways in which you can help support the show, and everything that is donated will be put back into future efforts for Black Box Online Radio. And if you are new to this channel, I do a segment every Monday called Zodiac Mondays, of course about the Zodiac Killer, and this year, on Wednesdays, I've been covering the Long Island serial killer mystery, so there are many cases to explore, and I'm always taking suggestions for new episodes. But right now, I am going to be devoting the Anything Goes segment on Fridays for the foreseeable future to the story of Stephen Avery and making a murderer. And this is coming at somewhat of an appropriate time to do the episode today, because I have just finished the first season of Making a Murderer, and... It was very hard to watch. I really found that just imagining not only what would happen if someone were to spend all those years in prison for a crime they didn't commit, but just the way that the legal system treats people in general. And I'll share those findings throughout the duration of the episode. A little info on Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey is, in 1985, Stephen Avery was accused of the sexual assault and severe beating of a woman named Penny Bernston, who even went on to point out Stephen Avery and accuse him of committing the crime. However, after spending years in prison, it was determined that Stephen Avery couldn't possibly have committed the sexual assault of Penny Bernston because of DNA in short, he was exonerated, and the real perpetrator was somebody named Gregory Allen. So Stephen Avery was let out of prison in 2003. Two years later, a woman named Teresa Hallback was murdered, and Stephen Avery became the prime suspect. And the authorities did not view it as a single killer operation. They thought that two people were involved, and that they were Stephen Avery and his nephew, Brendan Dassey. This came at the time when Stephen Avery was trying to file a $36 million lawsuit against the, um, oh, was the state or the county? Well, he has a very big lawsuit in the works. 
And is it possible that he was framed because they didn't want to deal with that, and it was just the easiest way of making the problems for um, the, the bureaucratic process and the political process and all of the people that benefit from it to go away? We aren't completely sure. And to the credit of making a murderer, they really presented it in somewhat of a dramatic fashion. And I know I shouldn't find any entertainment value at all in this story that is horribly tragic, especially for Teresa Hallback, who was murdered. But, I mean, if Stephen Avery, let alone spending years in prison for a crime he didn't com commit, and almost everybody has accepted that, that he did not commit the 1985 rape of Penny Bernston. So, it, um... I mean, when I say that, there are some saddening things. There's also this element of suspense when we don't quite know from watching season one, did he do it or didn't he do it? Was Brendan Dassey involved or wasn't he? It really is just a back and forth. And they created this um, very big cloud of ambiguity as a, as a broadcast production. It was um, rather... Um, entertaining and gripping to watch, but part of me felt uh, guilty for even trying to find something entertaining in it at all. Okay, so there are two participants in the crime, and if you ever watch the show Making a Murderer, episodes 9 and 10 are devoted to the trials, more or less. Episode 9 focuses more on the story of Stephen Avery, and episode 10 focuses more on the story of Brendan Dassey. In episode 9, there was something where um, I thought that there was just a whole bunch of mixed feelings all coming together, and Stephen Avery is convicted. He is found guilty of the murder of Teresa Hallback, and the judge is saying that your crimes have been escalating. He is saying that Something to the effect of, you've been given a new lease on life, and you absolutely abused it. Meaning that he was wrongfully convicted for those years. He got out. He had the chance to regain his freedom, and he murdered a woman. Therefore, Stephen Avery is the most dangerous offender that has ever been in the judge's courtroom. And that was the time when I began to think, the legal system just treats people as words on a page. I kid thee not. That's all we are to them. Words on a page. It's like, oh, well, you've been convicted, therefore you are the most dangerous person who has ever been in my courtroom. Never mind if he actually did it or not, and the judge should have had a very strong understanding of that, because in the United States of America, you are either found guilty or not guilty. That just means that, um, they couldn't prove it, whether you're actually innocent or not. We do not know, but that's the whole point. We do not know, and the judge doesn't know anything about his innocence. Maybe he didn't do it, but the evidence presented was certainly not overwhelming, and the forensics were certainly not enough to say, absolutely, certainly, 100%, there's no other possibility he had to have done it. That's the whole reason why they did the show in the first place. That's the whole reason why I'm talking to you about it now. Because there's this enormous cloud of ambiguity in the results. And there's a very high chance that Stephen Avery was framed. That they um, tried to um, get rid of 
him or put him back in prison so they wouldn't have to deal with any future problems. But episode 10 focused more on the story of Brendan Dassey, who is the nephew of Stephen Avery, who confessed to involvement and that he was present and he saw what was going on and he was involved with what was going on and he is sharing details and so on. And almost everybody is somewhat of a consensus that Brendan Dassey had a rather low IQ. He wasn't completely aware of his mental faculties. He didn't understand what he was confessing to. He even says some things about, oh, can I go home now? And they're like, no, not yet. And he says that he wants to be released um, before WrestleMania uh, premieres. So it shows that he may not have completely comprehended the situation at all. He thought that just by telling people what they wanted to hear, they would let him out. And at first he could go home. Then over the years, he truly began to comprehend the gravity of the situation. And he, um, at the end of the series, they have a very big spiel on how Steve, uh, sorry, Brendan Dassey is just openly pleading for his innocence. He confessed to something that he didn't understand, and he was just trying to get out of prison. He didn't do it. Both Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey are standing by their claims of innocence. But then what on earth actually happened? It really is a mystery. However, about how the legal system just treats people as words on a page, in the United States of America, you have the right to a fair trial. And they talked about this a lot in the later parts of uh, Making a Murderer. And if there is even one violation of your rights, then you didn't get a fair trial, and that person is supposed to be exonerated. I mean, maybe exonerated is a strong word in that sense, but they're not supposed to go to prison. So... In, in episode 9, they're really focusing in on something called EDTA, episode 8, sorry, but, um, you know, tomato, tomato. And they're really looking at something called EDTA, which is a preservative that is used by laboratories to um, um, preserve blood. And they go back to the vial of blood that they had of Stephen Avery that was stored in an evidence um, room, more or less, his blood that had been preserved, and it was kept in a box that had a broken seal, and the seal had been taped over. It had been punctured with a hypodermic needle, and it was still, there was still blood in the vial, but what they were trying to say was, is it possible that somebody removed the blood from the vial and planted it in Teresa Holbach's car to try and frame Stephen Avery? Because they thought that um, this was really bizarre, that his blood would be where it was found if all he did was murder her on his property, in his own trailer. And the theory was that they, he then took her body to his backyard area and burned it in a burn pit, which had like lots of um, wooden charcoal bits. A burn pit on the property. Like, why would his blood be in her car at all, right? Well, I mean, maybe there's some type of explanation. Or was it planted? Now, if it came from the lab, it should have contained the preservative EDTA. And they even said this on Making a Murderer. We heard a lot about it in the O.J. Simpson case. I perhaps first learned about it from the movie Blade, even though I completely forgot and I had to get a bit of a refresher, but they talk about EDTA. And in the O.J. case, 
they tried to say the same thing. If it contains EDTA, then it's from a lab and somebody has been framed. But the blood that was found from Stephen Avery did not contain EDTA, this blood preservative. And in all fairness, I think the show Making a Murderer did somewhat of a sloppy job in that regard because I believe that they really misrepresented how EDTA works. As I said, we heard all about this with O.J. Simpson, so many of us would know that EDTA can occur naturally in the blood. And allow me to go over to webmd.com right now and say, firstly, um, in one way that it comes into the blood without a laboratory but unnaturally is, some people take EDTA to try and treat diabetes, peripheral vascular disease, Alzheimer's disease, and um, those three uh, conditions there. But really, the things that I would zone in more on is, can you get EDTA naturally from foods? Yes, such as sodas, canned fruits and vegetables, non-nutritive sweeteners, condiments such as mayonnaise, and salad dressings. And from the OJ case, they frequently talked about fast food. So as you see, things are that are high in uh, sugars, fats, oils, especially some of the synthetic ones, EDTA can occur in the blood naturally. So even if there is EDTA in the blood, that doesn't mean anything in the exact way, unless the forensic technicians have some type of knowledge with it, which they were not sharing. But I don't know. It's just a mystery, and I do not have the best answer on how the blood evidence was transferred in this case. But there are other ways in which someone could have their rights violated. And in episode 10 of Making a Murderer, they talked about how Brendan Dassey had a lawyer who possibly was on the side of the prosecution, who was possibly trying to encourage him to just take a plea deal. And at first I thought, well, lawyers do that all the time. They want people to plead guilty to something. And... In the past, I talked about the Steve Wilkos show on this channel. I have one episode about him. And so many times, people would go on the Steve Wilkos show, you know, the daytime talk show, and they would talk about how they entered a guilty plea to a crime they didn't commit. And he's like, how on earth could you admit to doing something that you didn't do? I mean, he would ask that all the time. They're like, the lawyers, the lawyers. And he's like, I don't want to hear about the lawyers. You, you entered a guilty plea to something that you didn't do? That happens all the time. Lawyers want people to plead guilty because they think that they're going to get an easier sentence. I mean, I'll never forget this episode of Dateline that I was watching once when an attorney uh, was talking about how he wanted his client to take a guilty plea, and they're asking the attorney, well, what if your client were innocent? I mean, what if he didn't do it? And the lawyer said, if I were innocent, I would have taken this deal. Something like five years or ten years on a murder charge, because facing life in prison without the possibility of parole, that would be the alternative and in an ambiguous situation. That was my original impression. That's what I thought that was going to happen. And I'm not a mind reader, so it's possible the lawyer could have been thinking down those guidelines. But what the Making the Murderer show wanted to do was just um, display that Brendan Dassey's attorney was being very cozy with the prosecution and was just trying to get a guilty plea from Brendan Dassey so they could move on, more or less, for lack of a better term. But if he's working with the prosecution, 
that means he wasn't defending his client, and then he didn't get the right to a fair trial. Then he didn't um, fulfill that obligation. Brendan Dassey's rights were violated, and thus he should be let out of jail. So I don't think the blood evidence would hold up. That issue with the lawyer, maybe. I mean, I know that making a murder is trying to present somewhat of a persuasive claim that there might be. They might be like eighty percent. These two guys, Avery and Dassey, are one, are absolutely innocent. Twenty percent, maybe they did it. So overall, I would say that it's somewhat of a persuasive program. But I mean, I don't know. I don't have a very good alternative to that. And right now, much like last week, I would like to go to Jerry Buting's book, which was written by the attorney for Stephen Avery, the defense counsel, that is, Illusion of Justice, Inside Making a Murderer and America's Broken Justice System by Jerome F. Buting, also frequently known as Jerry. And this section is called Swimming Upstream, when it says, The old Manitowoc courthouse has been sitting on the southeast corner of 8th and Washington Street for a century. Its stately doomed presence, like that of a monarch on his throne, gazing down at his subjects. Inside, grand staircases wrap around a central atrium as they lead upstairs to the courtrooms. Downstairs, the clerk of the circuit court's office is on one side of the atrium, and across from it is the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office. Many counties have moved their sheriff departments out of their old courthouses into modern, less central office buildings, not Manitowoc in Wisconsin. It was a warm afternoon near the end of July 2006 when I walked up the steps. Through the tumult of my first four months since joining the Avery Defense, I had worked toward this moment, hunting down a vial of Stephen Avery's blood that was accessible in the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office. Even now it seemed like a long shot. Once the authorities had claimed that specks and smears of Stephen Avery's blood had been found in the RAV4 of Teresa Hallback, he faced a steep climb. They also noted pointedly that he had a cut on his finger. Peculiarly, though, Many sets of fingerprints had been recovered from the vehicle, yet none were Stephen Avery's. There was also a clear palm print right near the hatch door latch. That's quite odd. Hatch door latch, but well, that's what it says. It was not Avery's, and it was not his print. Right near of the hatch. As of writing this, it has never been identified. Indeed, no trace of Stephen Avery was found in the RAV4, other than the bloodstains. Presumably, the state could theorize that he had worn gloves, thereby eliminating the chance of prints. But how? How could they have his blood on the dashboard, especially if it had come from a cut on his finger and he was wearing gloves? Had he taken the gloves off? If so, back to the original problem, why weren't his prints found anywhere on the car? If he took the time to wipe off the fingerprints, why were other people's prints found? And how could he not wipe up the blood if he was wiping off his fingerprints? These questions troubled me. I don't know, dude, uh, Jerry. They, they trouble me too. I mean, uh, the EDTA and the blood is one thing, but those are some very big questions. Okay, they have this um, blood evidence that should have come 
from a finger, but what kind of gloves would he have been wearing? And he wants to get rid of fingerprints, but doesn't get rid of blood evidence? I mean, yes, these questions trouble me too. But there was no innocent explanation for the presence of Avery's blood. Either he had bled in the car, or someone had planted his blood. A frame-up was what Stephen Avery had claimed from the very beginning, even before he was arrested. He told reporters that if his blood was found inside Teresa's vehicle, someone else had put it there. Absurd, the prosecutor named Kratz scoffed. The Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office did not have access to Stephen Avery's blood, he insisted. I considered the possibilities. What sources of Avery's blood were available? A few drops found inside the bathroom floor in Avery's trailer were later to have, sh have been have shown to have been his. There was nothing unusual about finding the blood of a man who worked in a junkyard, cutting up cars and wrenching out stuck parts in his own bathroom. Everyone who worked at the scrapyard evidently got Nixon cuts. In a photograph, one of these drops in the bathroom was taken by investigators. It looked as if someone had removed parts of the stain. The center was gone, and the outer ring of the blood remained. Perhaps I considered that these spots of blood could have yielded enough to plant in Teresa's car, but not much blood was actually recovered from the floor, and it wasn't clear who'd had access to the blood in the bathroom. Because DNA had eventually led to Stephen Avery's exoneration in 2003, maybe I thought the blood could have been collected at some point during the appeal process. However, I confirmed with the Wisconsin Innocence Project that the DNA sample taken in 2002 had been obtained by rubbing his inner cheek, which has an abundance of cells, and they used a cotton Q-tip. So, um, I'm going to uh, stop right there, but one more time, this was Illusion of Justice, Inside Making a Murderer by Jerry Buting. As of now, if you've made it this way, this far, into the recording, do you have one side where you're leaning toward, one way or the other? Do you believe that there is some type of frame-up going on with Stephen Avery. I mean, I know that Jerry Buting is his lawyer. He's trying to win, right? Think about everything I said about Brendan Dassey. He didn't have a lawyer that was 100% on his side, so maybe his rights were violated and the whole case needs to get thrown out. Are these questions giant plot holes in the prosecution's theory? Or are there still ways that these can be explained. I mean, well, the, the simplest explanation the prosecution would put forward is his blood is in the car because he killed her. There's some type of altercation that took place. The judge was right. He's the most dangerous criminal ever because he was given a second chance on life, so he thought that he was untouchable and he went after a woman. Recidivism. He was a born criminal. That's what the prosecution would perhaps want to argue. Or do you think that this was a frame-up in some way, the way that Jerry Buting proposed, that they obtained some type of blood evidence from the bathroom and they were able to transfer that to the RAV4 that was driven by Teresa Hallback? Therefore, or in that way, the fingerprints are not found on places like the dashboard or the um, interior of the car, but the blood is. Is there any particular way that you are leaning toward. Does, does any particular theory make sense to you? If you have an explanation for these questions, I would like you to put your responses in the comment section down below and share anything that you want. I'm not really going to judge you because 
it's really just an open place for discussions. And one more time, anybody can write the show at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com. You can also get me on Facebook. My personal Facebook is in the description box, as well as blackboxned88 on Instagram. And of course, the book is Killer on a White Horse, Launchpad 1 for free downloads. And there is the Teespring page. If you'd like to check out the merchandise, buymeacoffee.com. And I will see you guys over on Instagram for the bonus podcast. But if you're listening to this on Launchpad 1, I will say until next time, and I will see you guys in the future. But if you are listening to this on YouTube, then please stay tuned because I will have a special bonus clip. And I would like to give a shout-out to the um, guy, to the channel, Paul Capaldi. And I'll be playing a clip from their show where they said some uh, very encouraging words about Black Box Online Radio. It also featured Jerome from the French Wrecking Crew and Moose Pete Dassey. So their episode is called Making a Murderer Live Chat with Pete Dassey, French Wrecking Crew's Jerome, and Paul Capaldi. And I would invite everyone to check out their channel in the future. I definitely think that this uh, show, the episode uh, that I just uh, promoted, is going to be more in line for people who are very familiar with the case of Stephen Avery as opposed uh, to some newcomers. But I invite you to listen to this clip all the same, and on Launchpad 1, I will say, until next time, everybody else, here's the clip.